for Who podcast, a four-part mini-series that looks to begin a conversation on the digitization of collections of African heritage. This series of discussions attempts to unpack the necessary care and ethics required when seeking to digitize African heritage, particularly in the age of restitution. While digitization is often considered a strategy for future-oriented safekeeping, distribution, and greater engagement, we ask for who and for what purposes? And are we making decisions about digitization that ensure these objectives are met in ethical, equitable ways? I'm your host, Chao Tayana Maina. And William Mwelo of Open Restitution Africa. Let's talk about access for who, for what. Four years ago, Molema and I met at a conference exploring the future of museums in Africa. Now, several emails, WhatsApp messages, and a ton of Zoom calls later, we started a project called Open Restitution Africa. The project seeks to make data on the restitution of African cultural heritage accessible because we believe that the question of data is so, so critical to the restitution discussion. How is it critical? We believe, again, that making data accessible creates more public awareness. It enables practitioners to collaborate across countries and regions, and it also facilitates knowledge sharing. So as part of Open Restitution, we began looking into the question of digital collections and digital restitution. The digital age is advancing rapidly and museums and cultural institutions are innovating in this direction. While this presents several opportunities, there are also several complexities that we need to be aware of. We're so excited that you're joining us for this four-part journey. We see it as a beginning and an invitation to ask ourselves and each other the important questions. We definitely don't have all the answers, but it's really vital that we've begun looking for them. Exactly. This first episode really sets the grounding. Um, We'll be discussing some definitions, introduce you to some ideas, but also try to understand how the main themes of this podcast really manifest within the context of African heritage and African realities in particular. We'll be speaking with some very, very inspiring minds who will help us get on the right footing and really lay the groundwork for the upcoming episodes in which we delve deeper into various aspects of restitution and digital collections. So speaking of inspiring minds, um, I think the right place to start is probably with um, some definitions, right? Um, Understanding where we all kind of come together and understand the same perspective. So first and foremost, we turn to Nima Ayer. So my name is Nima Ayer. I'm an artist, I'm a technologist. I'm also the founder of Policy, which is a feminist collective civic tech organization based in Kampala, Uganda. I also run a podcast called Terms and Conditions, which looks at digital cultures across Africa. And yeah, that's there's more to me, but I will leave it there. So I actually looked it up um, in terms of digital. So apparently digital comes from digits, which comes from fingers, which comes from counting, which is, you know, when you think about it, it's like, you know, zeros and ones. It's a string of numbers, but I don't really, I I know that that's like the back end. That's how it looks and that's how it works. But for me, I feel like it's this kind of intangible visualization of our physical world 
So for me, it feels very intangible. Like you, like you need a device to interact with this other world. So you need your phone or you need a laptop or a computer. Um, any kind of device that, of course, you know, converts those strings into something that we can see and visualize. And I think it's interesting in that it's how, like, for example, like, take the example of, like, the floppy disk, right? And that has become the universal symbol for saving. And so that's just how we visualize it now. And it's become a symbol. And there's probably people, I mean, many young people walking around who have never seen a physical floppy disk, but they know when they look at that little icon that it means to save. And that's how we have chosen to visualize the word save in a digital space. So, and the other thing I think about digital is, for example, I don't know if you've ever met someone, you know, that you met, that you see on Twitter all the time. And this happens to me all the time. Like I'll see people who are online and, you know, they might be super vocal online and then you meet them in person and they're just a very different person. It's not at all what you expected. They're very quiet. And it also makes me think that people have a, like a different digital manifestation of themselves in online spaces. So for me, it's almost just like a parallel world where anything can happen. Um, anyone can exist in, in different forms as well. So maybe it's more in line, I guess, with you know what Meta is trying to do with the Metaverse. But it's it's just a different parallel world that exists, and it's powered by ones and zeros, which feels like magic. I think this point that Nima makes about ones and zeros feeling like magic is a really important one because it points to the kind of way that the digital has become so ubiquitous to our lives, but at the same time remains this slightly mystical thing that we don't fully connect to our everyday lives or become the kind of other version of our everyday lives. Um, but it also highlights a serious limitation of how we've historically approached the digital, which is this kind of a space of possibility and magic and wonderfulness. Um, and I think that this kind of, even though we've come to maybe understand it differently, still remains with us. We still see it as this magical space. I don't know what you think. You know, it's so interesting because I remember when I first encountered computers, this was in high school, and I was taking a class in computer studies. And the way in which we learned about the internet was that it was this space that was kind of like an equalizer and a space that unified everyone and everything. What we believed about the internet um, at that time was that as long as you were on the internet, we all had equal opportunities. And while this may be true, you know, to some extent, we now are seeing that in very many spaces, the internet in itself has been a space that is replicating a lot of harm, a lot of bias and a lot of inequality. And it's become very clear that this notion that, you know, digital is neutral and digital is for everyone is false. And yes, there are ways in which this is being unpacked, but not to the extent that we can sit back and look at digital spaces as spaces that serve us all equally. Now, as we take a closer look at digital technologies, we need to unpack them. We need to understand how they affect us as Africans, as people of African descent. And so it's really interesting to have this space that provides so many opportunities and so many inequalities at the same time. But the question for us is, you know, how do we make this magic work? How does this magic of digital technology become more of a blessing instead of a curse? Absolutely. I love that. How do we make this magic work for us? And we'll obviously discuss this a little bit more over the next couple of episodes. 
um, this idea of um, this space of access and this space of openness that is the digital uh, remains one of the kind of central tenets of digitizing collections in museums and, and digitizing kind of collections of African heritage. And so it becomes vital that we mm-hmm. begin to question this and unpack it a little bit mm-hmm. um, so that, as you say, we can make the magic work for us. So at this point, we'd really like to unpack the realities of how this plays out, these complexities and biases and nuances that we're talking about. How do they show up in the real world? What are they? Where are they? And especially what ways do they manifest uh, from an African perspective? And we'll have Nima unpack this for us. I think looking from, you know, a physical infrastructure point of view, the way digital is right now structured is very exclusive in that many people don't have basic connectivity. So that is the first problem that we run into is that people just don't have access. The second point is cost. So, for example, in Uganda, we have the highest Internet costs of, you know, all of East Africa. And that is a major barrier. We also have... um, some pretty regressive laws that make the internet even more expensive and um, more out of reach for a lot of people. And from our research, we've seen that, you know, generally women tend to earn less. And so they have less income available to spend on things such as data bundles. So they tend to be excluded from these online spaces. So the very structure, the very infrastructure is set up in a way that it can be exclusive of people who are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, who are women, who are marginalized in any other way that they cannot afford to be in this digital space. And that's very concerning because a lot of our lives are moving into this parallel digital space. And what does it mean for all these people who get left behind from that conversation? And then if we go more to the intangible, so um, in terms of the content that is online, most of it is in, I would say, colonial languages. So a lot of content is in English, it's in mm-hmm. um, Spanish, French. Now now more so, there, there's more content in, for example, Mandarin and Hindi, like that has come in the past few years. But that remains a major barrier in how people can basically use the internet. So if you log on to a platform and all the instructions are in English or you know French or Spanish, that basically serves to exclude you from those kinds of platforms. And that really, like, English is a lingua franca of the whole world, but especially it has been off the internet. So it's quite um, exclusionary in that way. This question on infrastructure is a really interesting point because we often talk about access from the perspective that accessibility is uniform for everyone. And the ways in which Nima speaks to both the physical infrastructure and also crucially the financial infrastructure that you need to get data is really important in this discussion within the African context, you know. One of the things that we've talked about between Molemo and I are the parallels between information that sits on the internet and information that doesn't sit on the internet. And just because something is not on the internet doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And so this brings forth the notion that the internet is a place where everything exists. And if you fall outside those realms or boundaries, then you're not legitimate. I'm really interested by the ways in which Nima speaks to this in a way, you know? Yeah, in a sense, I think you can almost speak to sort of two sides of the same coin in in what Nima references. So on the one hand is this physical access, which is this kind of financial device data, even like the speed of internet kind of um, concern, which is like physical access. And on the other side is a 
is a more kind of conceptual or epistemic access, uh, which is this question of things like language or, or other kinds of more conceptual relationships to this place called the internet, that when you don't have physical access, even the idea of how you engage with the internet shifts no? and, and can be really difficult to even imagine connecting with. And I think that part of what Neem is pointing to is the fact that the internet in many ways isn't a place for Africans, um, hasn't, hasn't necessarily been made for Africans, um, hasn't necessarily been made for most of the world, to be honest. Um, as she points, like English is the lingua franca of the internet. And that has a particular impact in how you relate to the internet, right? And, and how, how you use it and what it's for, particularly as, I suppose, the physical access question is such a massive one on the African continent. So even though we have quite a lot of mobile internet use, um, I think we have one of the highest numbers of like mobile internet users in the world because so many Africans have more than one phone. But that's quite limited to like people in the cities or it's quite limited to certain sort of um, class access, gender access. Um, and the way that you use the internet from your mobile is also very specific to certain kinds of services and, and platforms, right? I think someone like Kola uh, really speaks to some of these relationships between the kind of physical access question and then the epistemic access question. My name is Kola Tsubosun. I am a linguist. That's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of what I do. Um, but I'm also a creative writer and I have done some work in teaching, some journalism in the past. Um, but my, my, my focus, my attention over the last um, decade or so has been in uh, finding ways to improve the presence of African languages in technology. Just finding ways to help African languages survive and to deal with the current century. I'll take you back to 2000 when I first got into university. I was a first-year student. A year later, I think I got my first computer, which was kind of a second-hand computer I was able to buy somewhere. And uh, I remember trying to write my name on the system and having it underlined in Microsoft Word. It still does it now, actually, for, for things that the uh, software doesn't recognize as English. And it does that because English was the basis for the software. And it's an American software company uh, computers were things made, you know, by Microsoft and Apple. Everybody was expected to to use and fit in it. So you would write, you know, a paragraph, and because there's an Yoruba name there or an Igbo name, it underlines that everything else looks, you know, everything else is is normal. But then I also realized another thing that when I was writing other Yoruba expressions, like. Um, because Yoruba is a tone language, so we use diacritics, which are marks on top of the vowels or under the vowels to uh, show either vowel quality or tone. So a word like Owo uh, is written differently from O, uh, is written differently from uh, Owo, etc. Those tone marks differentiate these things and you can, you can say something totally different if you don't properly mark it when you write it. Um, so I realized that this tool to, to mark didn't exist in Microsoft Word at all. And many of my professors who, you know, wanted to write in you know, Nigerian languages often had to buy softwares to use. Sometimes they didn't have it. Some languages don't have scripts. 
or some languages do not have the scripts incorporated into um, Unicode, which is the computer system that uh, that powers the typing of languages online. So I, I started realizing that, you know, um, without us having a presence there on the internet, we were being excluded gradually. Uh, most of the languages uh, on the internet were in English, Wikipedia entries were in English, Google searches were in English. If you search for something in Yoruba, if you didn't put the mark, marks, you wouldn't get the right results. Sometimes you put the marks, you didn't get them either. Carla, speaking from the perspective of a linguist, really, I think, unpacks some of these complexities around epistemic access, but also how, you know, your first relationship with the digital is is saying that you're wrong somehow you know this this idea of mm. your name being underlined I mean we've all experienced that um and I think it's a really useful way of sort of just marking your initial experience with even the most basic program like Microsoft mm. Word and even though he's coming from more of a, a literary background I think really starts to point to the kinds of limitations of the internet more broadly and how African knowledge systems, heritage, uh, histories fit into it or don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Kola has uh, developed some really interesting strategies of how to deal with this and um, we'll definitely come back to those just now but also later on in the episodes of this podcast. But what I think is really important that he points to here is just these these kind of for lack of a better word, quirks in the system uh, that make the digital and digitizing incredibly difficult and really quite unreliable within the space of the kind of connection of African heritage and the digital space. You know, it's really vital that we begin to see these things as not just small things in the ways in which you can keep hearing, for instance, over and over again, that you're wrong, the computer can't understand this or that. But when it's happening, you know, when you're writing something, you tend to think that it's insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But really, when we see this at a larger scale, you know, what what kind of implications does it have when these little quirks, as you mentioned, Malemo, when they build up? And many of us know the stories of machine learning or artificial intelligence being based on large quantities of problematic data. More and more, we've seen this. I think there's a whole Netflix show on it, actually. And therefore, we are building data sets. We're building systems out of data that is problematic, sexist, racist, and biased. And what happens when these systems become embedded in everyday life, you know? Now, within the heritage space and the museum space, and as people who work in arts and culture, we are saying that we're not immune to this. And so much of the knowledge on African history, the written works on Africa that is now being turned into digitized data is still um, subjected to this very long drawn out process of the inaccuracies, the gaps, the limitations, the racism that we are seeing in other data sets as well. Absolutely, absolutely. As you say, it can feel like small little quirks, but in the bigger scheme of things, when we start to look at it at scale, Mm -hmm. we really start to see the implications and, and I think what's so important about what you're saying is we also have to recognize our role in, in kind of contributing to that, that broader scale of data and the, the potential results that emerge out of the way our technologies are shifting and how Africans play a role in kind of what goes in, but then are also quite affected by, by what comes out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Kola also speaks to this a bit. He 
kind of speaks to this phrase, which I think comes from uh, the machine learning space and the kind of tech space of garbage in, um, garbage out. So one of the things we created uh, at the beginning was a free tool marketing software which people could download and use to be able to write in Yoruba because we believe that writing in Yoruba uh, properly with the markings uh, is a very important way of writing language. In any case, it also helped uh, the translation machines that were eventually developed because uh, if uh, it's called garbage in garbage out, if we have enough properly written text on the internet, then there will be properly um proper translation uh, outputs when the machines gather those texts and use them. It's very interesting to look at it from the perspective of knowledge systems. And we are so excited to be joined by Temi Odumosu, who is a historian and an academic. She speaks to the ways in which this limited field of um, knowledge sharing according to particular systems and according to particular rules um, how it affects how we create knowledge and how we share knowledge. Uh, when we speak about African history in particular, what are the silences that we have and the gaps that we have? And furthermore, what happens when these silences are being replicated over and over again within the digital sphere? I'm an art historian by training, and I've spent a long time sort of embroiled in the archives of slavery and colonialism. But one of the things I learned whilst being there in the physical archives and in the process of my research transforming as things became more readily available online is the extent to which the things that were unfinished and unprocessed, um, the emotions, the affects, um, the ways in which histories had not been told fully, partially fragmented, that there were many silences in the archive uh, as Michelle Rolf Trio reminds us, the Haitian historian. And so there are all of these gaps, silences, omissions, um, places of deep pain, trauma, ambiguity, in a confrontation with the original archive, if you can call it, all the, the, the evidential documents that, that came direct from planters, uh, records, that, and, and so on. And then realizing that um, that unfinishedness kind of migrated when institutions decided to um, open up collections, uh, make them more readily available, um, primarily in the name of accessibility. I really, really love this point that Temi brings up when she speaks uh, in the name of accessibility, quote unquote. Because what does it mean to access something that is inherently flawed to reproduce it over and over again? And, you know, this whole podcast um, is about challenging and exploring notions around access. For me, as a historian, uh, this is one of my favorite parts because she speaks very beautifully to the kind of unfinished nature of archives. That even when they're whole, you know, when you walk into an archive or a library and, and you encounter a record, it in itself um, is an unfinished record of the past. And sometimes these archives are reproducing uh, the perspective of the people who created them and therefore are traumatic in many ways, are biased in many ways. And now Temi has spent a lot of time working with records relating particularly to the periods of slavery. And what she asks is that when we come to this material, you know, as Africans, as people who are directly connected to such traumatic past, 
we can't really separate what happens when we encounter them, whether they're physical or digital. You know, the digital still carries with it the same affects as the physical records. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you know that this just speaks so much to many of the things that I've been concerned with um, ever since I first sort of stepped into a uh, European museum's mm-hmm. African collection and the book of records of the different objects was opened in front of me and I realized it was pretty much empty. Um, with, it was such a stark shock for me to see that, you know, that the average page, particularly sort of in the colonial period when museums were collecting en masse at a speed they could barely keep up with, the average page of this um, record book has a drawing of the object, the name of the person who brought it in, mm-hmm. so usually a white male collector, um, maybe the name of the people who it was collected from, but sometimes that would just be replaced with some racial slur instead. Um, and then some measurements of the size, a little bit about the material it's made of, and a number. And I mean, that's, that's not information, right? That's information about a museum. That's not an information about a, an object, an artifact. It's mm-hmm. not an information about uh, a people. It's not information about a ritual, a practice, a life. Um, and so, so recognizing that that's the information they have. And then when they're digitizing these collections, they're literally repeating the same absences, the same silences, mm-hmm. the same information that they claim is about the object, mm-hmm. but is actually much more about Western collecting and museum practice than it is about any African history, right? So, so true. And we talk about digital collections in the next episode, and I'm excited to get to it. But, you know, this point on the replication of violence is something that you and I have both encountered as practitioners, you know, just traveling um, around the world and around Africa and, and seeing the kind of ways in which collections are described, particularly colonial collections. And we have several examples of this can be really traumatizing And it's interesting to me because you go to these collections, you know, looking for answers, but you actually end up leaving with more questions. And I'm sure you can relate to that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think Tammy speaks to to this really well when she refers to the kind of promise of abundance. But as you say, we're just left with a lot more questions. Um, and I think digitization brought with it a kind of promise of um, abundance. And it's like, oh, that we, we can share more from what is in the basement. And we can also allow people to kind of engage with it in a much more diverse way. Because, of course, when you put things online, that, you know, things become networked, right? They, they, they have a social kind of life. Of course, What it also means, especially in terms of institutional mindset, is that there there was a kind of, there is a kind of, how would I describe it? A kind of strange gap. So on the one hand, um, it's digitization, sharing cultural heritage for all. On the other hand, it's digitization so that now that it's online, we don't have to think about it too much. We don't have to think about the collections too much. We can allow for things to just do things in the world and and we can carry on with the business of looking after originals. 
I think that uh, Tammy's point around getting on with the originals is a vital one here um, because often within the space of how African heritage is being digitized and, and particularly within the museum and sort of archive space, this digital part of the work is done as a kind of extra, as something of an aside um, that is intended to create more access, is intended to um, ensure a kind of keeping up with the, the futuristic needs of any institution and not getting left behind by technology. But it's not necessarily kind of a central practice in and of itself. I think both of us have found this in our experience with museums. And so what you often have is people who are really concerned with the originals mm -hmm. engaging in a digitization process that is seen as a blank and neutral kind of copy, secondary to the authenticity of an original object. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, I often feel like there isn't enough of a recognition and expertise or even just a study and understanding of the complexity of this whole new beast that you're producing in the digital realm. And too often this means that people who are dealing with originals are also expected to take on the digital realm. And what we are seeing with museums and this whole rush to digitize is that the staff and the people who take care of the originals, the curators, the researchers, the conservators, are expected to oversee the digitization process in itself with very little support and awareness on what the technology entails, what it could do, and the potential and the damages that it could bring. And so what we're seeing here is really a problem of two worlds communicating with each other. Because as a techie myself and understanding the ways in which data can seem the same, you know, from a tech perspective, whether it's data on agriculture, data on culture, data on money, um, it can seem like the same thing. Data is data, you know, if you look at it from that perspective. Uh, but what damage does, does it bring um, when this is not challenged um, from a heritage point of view. Now, it's not all gloom and doom. Um, there are some people who are working on strategies for enabling ways that digital technology can support African needs and also African heritage needs because this is also a, a complex issue on its own. I speak to this a lot in my work uh, because I believe that African heritage and the complexities that we have faced as a people in accessing heritage, in coming to our heritage, these complexities still need to be accounted for when we digitize and when we talk about digital collections. And so for me, digitization is not just an opportunity to provide access. Um, it's a way of completely reimagining and radically almost reimagining what access actually means. And one thing that I feel often that happens is we are very clear on what we don't want, right? We don't want AI systems that um, are biased against us, or we don't want um, an internet that's exclusive, or we don't want online violence. But I think where we struggle is, okay, what exactly do we want? Um, I think what Nima really points to in this sort of um, catch-22 situation is the need to begin to imagine what our alternatives can be and what can be created. So we need to be able to understand the limitations of the technology we have and recognize that we cannot simply assume that we're not replicating long-held social injustices, but also not leave technology 
in that space and sort of give up on it, I suppose, but rather recognize that if dealt with in thoughtful and careful and brave ways, we might be able to move beyond um, these kinds of limitations. Someone like Kola, who we heard from before, really challenges us to think through ways we can make this technology bend to our will, uh, make this magic work for us, as you said, Chow. Um, with an example of a project he's developed over many years, which looks to address a social concern, first and foremost, for African practitioners and their heritage, but also, I think really importantly, begins to build data frameworks and infrastructures that have potential for future needs as well. Yorubaname.com uh, dictionary is an open source project, um, by which we mean that all the, the code is available on GitHub, and people can use it to create their own project. But even the, the database itself, the Yoruba names, from the very beginning, I've known that names, I don't own it. You know, it doesn't belong to me, specifically it belongs to the culture, it belongs to the people, which was why we made it open uh, crowdsourced as well, by which I mean that all the names there are editable. Anybody who finds the name and finds the meaning can click on the button and say, well, this name is wrong, or the meaning is not complete, or there's a story I have about my name that I think might, you might be interested in, and then can put it there, and then we can add it so more people can see it. One of the things we also hope to do is to like, incorporate social media elements so people can like, have discussions on their names and maybe share stories and stuff like that. So when we're working with African cultural traditions, you know, legacies and you know, um, things like this of cultural value, it's important to note that you, know, you don't own it. What we're trying to do really is to facilitate access to other people, um, to have access to it, especially Africans who own this uh, cultural heritage. There are people I've spoken to who don't know the meaning of their names, but their own names, you know, they never asked their parents, or the parents passed away or whatever. But they go to dictionary and they find somebody who has a similar name that had a story that can help them connect to their own uh, heritage, which is exactly what my plan was uh, at the beginning. Just to create a space, just like Google has done for most of humanity, a space of, of Facebook or Twitter, where we can uh, find a way to collaborate and share knowledge in a space that is you know, trustworthy and find ways to connect with each other um, through our cultural heritage. Another group that is reimagining ways of using the digital for African heritage, for African data, is the Women's History Museum of Zambia. Now, Malema and I are huge fans of the work uh, that founders Samba and Mulenga are doing. They're working with digital museum collections to reconnect communities with their heritage. And using this point of reconnection essentially as a methodology for research into what makes digital forms uh, accessible for Africans and people of African descent who want to encounter their history online. Mulenga shares how they do this. Part of the, the, the workshop and the workshopping that we were doing with the, with the villages was to find out from them how to design the platform so they can access it. So. We were also asking them about how many how many devices you know uh, they have in the in the village. What is the uh, the connectivity? You know things like that. Um, what is the literacy rate in the village? If if they have to put information onto the platform, who can do it? And the people in the village actually came up with their own solutions. You know, which was really gratifying yeah. because sometimes we tend to think that oh this is impossible, but the people themselves who appreciate who appreciated this and and, and 
So the, the, the idea, something that they could actually jump onto and be participants in, they came up with their own solutions on how they can use that platform as people in the village with limited devices or limited connectivity, you know, they all limited literacy. So they gave us those ideas as well. Like, okay, if we are going to use this from this village, which has so many, only so many devices and so much connectivity, we will do it like this. So we, we also wanted to explore that, that aspect of, of, of um, digital restitution, if you want digital, that is it possible? And, you know, in, in the African sense, is it because sometimes I think we Africans sometimes limit ourselves by just thinking, well, oh, we don't have that much coverage, people don't have this, people don't, so it won't, you know, but mm. sometimes the solutions are actually with the people themselves who you are working with. And we got a lot of solutions, you know. And so what Sam and Mulinga are doing at the Women's History Museum really shows us that there are ways of addressing the limitations. Because if we stop at the limitations themselves, then we are ignoring the reality that this information, this data is still very, very vital to us. This idea that we have a lot of our own solutions is a very powerful one. It enables us to begin approaching technical questions from a sense of ownership, which is very important. How does technology intersect with our capacities, with our infrastructure, with our knowledge? This is what Nima Ayer calls conceptualizing our own data futures. I love it. For Kola, some of this might live within our own heritage to begin with. So uh, I don't know if I have a direct answer to your question, but I'm hoping that um, more of us think specifically, yes, outside of the um, colonial spaces, using our indigenous knowledges. Um, if I is one of them, which is a binary, uh, um, you know, uh, kind of corpus. Um, many people say it's, it's a source of you know many things that eventually became computer systems. But we never developed it into that you know uh, system. To be fair, um, we had it, and you know, other people learned from it and then used it to, to create uh, stuff. So uh, the question is, what do we do with the knowledge we have that has not yet been captured and commodified, and how do we uh, make sure they can work for us too? better encode our knowledge systems, better empower us to be able to deal with the realities of modern existence, and um, better enhance our way of life. And, you know, I don't have the answer, but I am looking as well. Uh, in this amazing statement, Kola refers to um, the IFA divination systems, which, for those of us less familiar with them, are largely understood to be one of the earliest binary code systems that mirror some elements of today's computing. For many, and as Kuala argues here, if a divination points to just one of the many ways Africans might source knowledge from existing heritage, as you said, Chao, having the knowledge ourselves and knowing what to do ourselves, um, maybe from contemporary knowledges, but also from historical and traditional ones such as IFA, to define our own data futures. Part of what we will do over the next couple of episodes is to attempt to explore this, um, to really try to unpack what knowledge we do have, what is available to us to reimagine the way that so far things have been moving um, and to try and find strategies for kind of better ways of doing it in the future. I mean, there is something liberatory about the digital when it's removed conceptually from either the Internet of Things, so apps, <laughs> right, or whether it's removed from like, 
these kind of clunky ways in which the digital space is just seen as um, a way to make things happen faster, quicker, more efficiently, and with less human interaction. Because that's also the way that the digital is kind of mobilized in our lives. But I also see it as, I don't know, I see it as a space of potential. Also in its capacity to um, reformulate, shift forms very quickly. I mean, now I'm thinking of this in terms of art and aesthetic practices, uh, and also thinking generatively with glitches and errors. How do glitches and errors intervene in ways that are actually generative, right? Um, so that a mistake online actually takes you elsewhere. Like, there's something about, if you're a curious person, the digital space is like, like it's like an endless kind of, you know, mm, space of treasures and like places where you can travel down um, roads and, and, and take left turns that maybe you wouldn't do in your actual life. But you can do online because um, the user interface is so much easier. Um, I think about the ways in which, you know, within the space of 10 years, I mean, you know, we have grandparents who are on WhatsApp sharing the strangest things and you're like, oh, right, that wouldn't have happened a decade ago, right? They'd be like, what is this thing? What is this WhatsApp? They're taking it, they're reformulating it, they're re-educating us about culture, they're sending, you know, visual to... And this is... The interesting thing is how WhatsApp and Twitter and all these other places are being used to distribute stories, colonial stories, but also family stories in a new way to, to gather people around the things that have been in the basin. And you take a quick photograph, you send it to the WhatsApp group. Okay, so now everybody has a copy and now we're looking at it. Now we're thinking about the family history together in a new way. So I, I think there's something about, you know, we have to continuously think about what more speed and more data means in terms of the nervous system. That said, I think there's also something interesting that it does in terms of connecting people and keeping people creative and thinking about clever ways of, of sharing and, and coming together. We are going to try to be honest and critical and upfront about the problematic ways that African heritage is being addressed in the digital realm. But we also really want to invite you to imagine together with us to explore, to ask questions, to learn from committed, clever people doing really amazing work. Because when we ask access for who, for what, we begin a journey of repairing old wounds, of deep care for our long dismissed histories, of creating anew. So please join us, continue with us on this journey and follow us for the upcoming episodes. This podcast is brought to you by Open Restitution Africa, a collaboration between African Digital Heritage and Andani Africa. The podcast is produced by Chao Tayana Maina and Mulemo Mwilwa with Pumzile Nombo Sotwala and Letabolaka Gumede on research. Thank you to Josh Chiundiza for the music, Karugu Maina on design, and Annalene van Heimbeek on editing. The podcast was made possible by 99 Questions at the Stifton Humboldt Forum in Berliner Schloss. This podcast is also available in zine form in French and German at www.openrestitution.africa and www.humboldtforum.org. Thank you for joining us.